This episode of Proof of Decentralization is brought to you by the Tornado Cash community. Privacy is a human fight. We can't just afford to give it up, guys. We shouldn't be expected to do that either. The Tornado community gets this. They're working hard to ensure the DeFi users get access to the privacy that they need. Ethereum is transparent. That has really good points and it has really bad points. You don't want everybody to just see all of your finances all the time. You don't just hand out copies of your bank statements, right? So you don't want your entire Ethereum transaction history visible to everyone in the world, unless you're a complete lunatic. Tornado gives you the tools you need to get some kind of privacy on Ethereum. That's a very, very important thing for you to have. You can learn more about Tornado at tornado.cash. Double check that URL, tornado.cash cash this week's episode i'm joined by bartek of l2 beat we dive into everything l2 especially the risks of centralization of admin keys all the stuff you need to know if you're using arbitrum optimism zk sync any of the l2s check out l2beat.com go there now to follow along with this conversation and enjoy my chat with bartek i'm here with bartek finally at long last, we were just talking about how we've been trying to to schedule this podcast for a few weeks, and things just kept coming up, right? It didn't feel right to do it. The first time it was scheduled, which was on the, I think on the day of the the UST unraveling, um, or right around there, right? Yeah, yeah. So that was pretty crazy, and uh, um, just uh, trying to talk about something different than uh, <laughs> Luna collapsing, right? <laughs> felt yeah. weird. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we rescheduled a few times, but here we are, and it's an important conversation to have, um, because, you know, my approach to a lot of these L2s has been, and my approach to everything in DeFi is very, um, straightforward, right? And I want to, I mean, I, I try to address nuance when it makes sense, but for my message to get out there, a lot of times I have to just be like in your face, here's what it is, here's what they're capable of doing, here's what might happen, here's the worst case scenario. Um, Polygon, you know, um, Chainlink recently, um, the list goes on and on. And the L2s that we're gonna talk about are included, like Arbitrum and Optimism and stuff like that. And a big part of the reason that I do that is just to get people talking about it, you know, just to get people, you know, to care. You know, so that they start to dig in. But when they start to dig in, I send them to resources like like yours, L two Beat, which you're the um, are you the, like the founder or co founder of it? Um, yeah, I mean, this is the uh, the project that I helped uh, founding uh, a while back. Uh, so I'm not the only founder. I work with uh, uh, two colleagues, uh, Chris and Piotr, uh, and we are growing the team right now. But uh, I originally co-founded uh, and came up with the uh, the idea. Yes. Okay. So yeah, I send people to resources like yours, and I use them myself because um, once you're aware of the issue through my loudmouth tactics, then you want to dig in. You want to get more of the nuance. You want to understand, you know, the real issues. And not just be surface level all the time, but actually dig in and understand, oh, so the multi-sig can do this and you have to worry about this uh, centralized sequencer and, you know, these things with L2s. So um, 
I'm glad we get to talk, you know, because your your take is really bit, you know, it's a lot more objective um, and a lot more even handed from a technical point of view, right? As opposed to my sort of more philosophical and political takes sometimes. And um, so it's good. I feel like uh, we could have a really good conversation over the next hour about about the issues because we, we both agree there are issues, right? There are risks with L2s. How did you get involved with like wanting to start this and what, what, what's your background that got you, that led you up to being this L2 beat, you know, L2 expert. Okay. So, um, so I've been working with the, uh, MakerDAO for a number of years. Uh, and this is my main project. I'm still at MakerDAO and, uh, I've done a lot of different uh, work, um, but quite recently I got mostly involved uh, in um, essentially uh, shaping up the, uh, the multi-chain strategy. Uh, how do you actually uh, scale MakerDAO to other chains, uh, but in a responsible way, right? And I think uh, MakerDAO has actually a very unique problem because uh, we want to uh, move DAI to different chains in such a way that uh, all the DAI across different chains will be uh, essentially fungible uh, to end users. So uh, to do so, um, we need to really understand the risks of each of these chains, right? DAI is originally created on Ethereum, and ideally uh, all the other chains should somehow um, inherit the security of the, the Ethereum so that if you uh, have die on, say, Optimism, Arbitrum, any other chain, really, you should feel that you're holding the same token. Uh, and more importantly, the MakerDAO uh, should really treat that die um, very much the same way as die on the mainnet Ethereum. Um, so um, we kind of realized, you know, very early on that uh, the only way to approach this is to fully understand the risks and to manage uh, these risks um, appropriately. So I tried and I, uh, I started to uh, kind of analyze uh, these different chains and created this massive spreadsheet. I was trying to raise awareness inside the DAO about the spreadsheet, but uh, you know, spreadsheets, uh, they are hard to maintain and even harder to um, to make uh, people aware of, right? <laughs> because it's just one link. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so frankly, the main idea about this project was to create a website so that we could actually publish, you know, all the information that uh, we kind of gathered. Uh, and, and, and that was the first version of the L2B, right? Uh, it was literally an expression or, or I don't know, uh, a way uh, for me to, to publish all the information that I sort of researched about all these chains. Um, but then it got uh, to be something much, much bigger because uh, we found uh, after a couple of months that people were actually using it as a resource and, and we got more and more attention and suddenly it became more and more important somehow. And uh, we felt that uh, it's not just publishing information, there's, there's you know, some responsibility with it as well. And at the end of the day, uh, right now, I feel that uh, the main reason this site exists is to, uh, to let the community uh, take care of essentially uh, uh, assessing the risk of all these different platforms, right? 
so that you don't have to trust, you know, the uh, the vendor, the platform vendor, so that they can actually they will tell you what is the security of your funds. It should be the uh, the uh, the community efforts to uh, to make sure that you know certain risks are exposed essentially, and they are made uh, available uh, for everybody. <clears throat> everybody should. Uh, essentially make a decision, right? Uh, whether right. they uh, should use this platform or not and uh, how this risk uh, should sort of affect, you know, their uh, decisions. Yeah. And, and that's, first of all, great alpha for anybody who's looking for really detailed risk assessments of a lot of different crypto assets, L2s, um and other protocols, the MakerDAO, um, it's in one section of the forum, right? It's like the, the the risk assessments, or I forget what it's called exactly, but there's excellent breakdowns of everything that MakerDAO has ever considered adding as collateral. Um, and then the L2s are obviously are not collateral, but they're you know it's a, it's another very important risk assessment that that you worked on. Um, so I, I recommend even if you're not interested at all in MakerDAO. Uh, or anything it's doing, those risk assessments are great. You know, if you want to get deeper into any of those crypto assets. So that's number one. What were you going to say? Oh, yeah, that uh, MakerDAO is all about risks, right? And yeah. it, uh, it's like you said, I mean, it's it's really about assessing the risk of uh, collateral, but you know, in case of L2s, it's essentially assessing the risk of all the collaterals that are on that L2. Yeah, yeah, because, because for MakerDAO, it's not all or nothing it's they, they do those risk assessments because that's how they determine the debt ceiling for each of these crypto assets so you know it's not like um they're gonna it just ignore something because it's risky they're going to add it and they're going to explain in this risk assessment okay here's why this is going to have a lower debt ceiling um than this over here which we think is super low risk you know and it's great for you as an investor or just a user in DeFi um, to, to take a look at that kind of stuff and develop your own risk assessments. And that leads me into the, the second part, because you were talking about the, you realized that L2B was serving this, this need for people to sort of develop their own risk assessment. And that's 100% the way I think all of DeFi should be available to users. And it's not, you know, is that, um, like, I don't believe super risky, ridiculous gambling type DeFi protocols should just be shut down. I don't think that at all. I think that there should be this kind of information and transparency fully available so that each person, if you're a total degen who wants to throw away your life savings on some nonsense, go ahead and do it. Like, I don't care. As long as you have access to all the information, the problem is a lot of people use these gambling type um, protocols with their life savings, but they don't realize they're getting into some black box nonsense, you know? So, um, so it's great that L2B is there and kudos to you, by the way, because like I started probably over two years ago to try to have a list of, of DeFi applications and break down like the risks with, with, um, centralization and deep and, um, admin keys and multi-sigs and DAOs and, in the beginning, I guess like late 2019, early 2020, my list was like maybe 15 because that was like all that there was in DeFi. And then like six months later, there was like hundreds and hundreds. And I said, there's no way I can do this. I cannot do this. Um, 
but you've you've got on L2 Beat. And by the way, if you're following along, it's L2Beat.com. You've got 20 now, and they're detailed breakdowns of each of these um, different layer twos. Um, they all have different functions and features and do different things, um, a lot of them. But I wanted to talk to you about, um, since we only have the hour, like I want to talk to you about um, the big ones, you know, and sort of get a little more in depth on some of the stuff you have listed here. So um, Arbitrum is number one with um, currently at the time of recording, it's 2.65 billion TVL on Arbitrum. Um, And then if you click into that on L2B, you get a really nice breakdown of risks. So when you're researching these, are you relying on documentation from the developers mostly, or are you, are you guys actually digging into the code and almost like doing a mini audit of the code? Okay, so uh, this is a great question, actually. And uh, it just points out uh, to, uh, to the fact that uh, over the years, uh, we learned not to trust anyone. Uh, we uh, need to verify ourselves, right? Uh, so, uh, so I guess the main prerequisite for us uh, is that the source code uh, of smart contracts that uh, comprise the whole system, uh, they should be uh, essentially verified, uh, ideally on Etherscan. I do understand that Etherscan is the uh, centralized service, and the ideal situation is that we double check uh, because otherwise you're essentially trusting it is scan to uh, to tell you the source code is verified, right? But um, if your system has no source code verified, and it doesn't matter if it's a you know DeFi app or uh, L2 or whatever, you're essentially throwing money into the black box. Uh, and I don't think there's anything more degen than just simply throwing money. Uh, into something that you don't understand how it works, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, the next step, obviously, would be to uh, to read documentation. But uh, but you have to realize that in software engineering, um, there are different roles. Um, a lot of engineers don't like to write good documentation. Sometimes it's written by other people. Uh, sometimes it's not updated. Um, so at the end of the day, you have to rely on the source code. Um, so I treat personally documentation as some sort of auxiliary uh, resource, uh, but uh, ultimately it's all about reading the code. Uh, so it is kind of almost like an audit. Uh, however, uh, this is not an audit, right? Um, every single audit, so like a professional audit, is essentially uh, a way to check if the source code does what it's supposed to do. Uh, being the security audit or some other audit, you know, there must be a spec and, and, and the code, right? And most auditors, they wouldn't, like, evaluate if the audited source code uh, makes sense or not. Um, they would so- simply check if it does what uh, it's supposed to do. Whereas what we do, I would say that uh, it's more of a architecture review of a system, right? So mm-hmm. we also read the code, uh, but we uh, focus on different things. Uh, we essentially focus on uh, how the whole uh, layer two uh, is constructed, um, uh, which smart contracts um, uh, are used uh, to, to make the whole construction, what are the security assumptions, um, who is the admin, who's the owner, what they can do uh, to the system, what are the parameters that they can change, uh, and 
um, how these parameters affect uh, the security of users' funds. Uh, so mm-hmm. these are the main questions that we keep asking ourselves, right? And as you observe, as you have observed, um, this is a, a lot of work uh, because these systems are quite complex. And obviously, you know, once we see more and more of them, uh, we will need to find a way to scale these efforts. And and I think uh, the two primary ways of doing this is to engage community more and more, and, and this is what we've been working towards. And uh, we also are building some automation tools, right? Which, uh, again, uh, our IT background allows us to do this quite uh, effectively. And if your background is different, then you will probably doing everything in a spreadsheet, right? And you will have very likely the information which is not up to date. Mm-hmm. So, right. yeah, so to sum up, you know, we read the source code, we don't trust documentation, and uh, we also uh, almost always uh, engage uh, with the uh, respective teams to, to kind of verify um, our claims. Okay. So, yeah, you're right about the documentation. I, I run into that challenge a lot too, and I find that um, it can be a great project with great developers. And it can even look like thorough documentation, but the challenge with with DeFi and with well, I guess it is sort with smart contract based uh, applications is that um, the documentation sometimes is sort of in this bubble, right? And this bubble will tell you, okay, here's what the application does, here's how it works, and there's very clear boundary around that bubble. That bubble could be completely dependent on the assumption that this admin key is secure or that this multi-sig is secure. And very often, and this happens a lot, like Chainlink's a great example. Like Chainlink has very thorough documentation. You go on their website and there's, it's like, you know, treasure, treasure trove of, of docs and links and all sorts of details about how things work. Um, but there's zero mention of a multi-sig, zero. Right. And so it's like you have this, this, just think of it like a bubble. That's the application. And then there's this one string hanging off the edge that is not covered in the documentation. You don't get this in traditional technology like as much because usually that bubble is your entire app, right? It's your, all of your tech fits in the bubble. Um, but with DeFi, you always have to think about these extra little things that might be sticking out here and there. And that's what you've done a really good job of doing with the risk summaries. Um, so I totally hear you, and it's it's an ongoing challenge. And I think, um, by the way, when those things are excluded from the documentation, personally, I don't think that it's done on accident. I think that developers are often taking advantage of the fact that people aren't thinking in this adversarial way. You know, and I think that Chainlink's like, why would we document this multi-sig? We're going to get rid of it later. It's only, it's this little um, thing hanging off the edge of our app that we're going to slice off, you know, later. It's like an appendix, right? It's like, we, <laughs> but you know, it's like, it should be documented. It's part of your security model. You have to go there. You have to be open. Um, and Arbitrum Optimism, same. So you have thought on that before I go into the risk summary? <laughs> I want to talk about that stuff. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm not sure if I would agree uh, 100% with you uh, on the fact that, you know, this is intentional, uh, that teams uh, tend to omit uh, this kind of uh, information. 
uh, it just feels to me that uh, more often than not, uh, all these systems uh, are highly complex, uh, most of them, uh, rollups especially. I mean, they're extremely complex uh, pieces of tech. And um, I would probably say that it would be strange uh, if there was no some sort of a emergency stop button of some sorts, like a circuit breaker, uh, in case there's a, there's a serious bug uh, being discovered, right? So these teams, um, because uh, they uh, are trying to be responsible, you know, they like let themselves uh, an access to such button. But of course, uh, by doing so, um, you su- suddenly need to trust them, right? That they are not malicious. And you run into this dilemma um, do you risk um, not having this uh, circuit breaker? And if there's a bug, there's nothing anyone can do. Uh, or there is the circuit breaker, and if everything goes well, the system works as intended. But you know, if something really terrible happens, there's this uh, um, emergency team that can actually press the, the stop button, right? Uh, or mm-hmm. can do the emergency upgrade. And I think uh, that's been an ongoing debate uh, how to actually make it so that um, you do have uh, this emergency uh, button, but this is not exploitable, right? And this is really, really hard. And everyone that I talk to care uh, uh, a lot about this topic, right? It's fine to have the emergency button. And that's, a, that's like a separate debate almost to the documentation of it. You know, oh, and yeah. when you don't document it, um, you know it's there. You've been asked about it a hundred times, but you still don't document it. To me, how can that be anything but intentional? You know, and the the logic might be, oh, we're going to get rid of it. We don't want to, you know, there's no need to document it. But at the same time, while it exists, all of the value that resides in your application or your protocol and it's other people's money uh, relies on that, and you don't document it, and like if Arbitrum was serious about, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but if they were serious about transparency, they would copy and paste your risk summary directly onto their website if it's open source, which I think it is. But like, I think that, they, you know, they, they do actually, uh, by the way, right? Do they? Uh, do they I have mean, a link? It's, it's not like a copy paste, but um, if you go to Arbitrum documentation, uh, they have this section somewhere. Uh, Essentially, saying that if you're like interested in uh, in detailed risk assessment, there's uh, um, L to beat, and uh, and you can read all about it. And I think Optimism also links. And uh, and this is something that I found uh, quite amazing. That uh, literally, almost no exception, every single project that I talk to, they're really happy that L to beat exists, even though you would think um, that um, by Focusing on risks, you know, we're um, essentially curtailing the potential growth. Um, but you know, I think about it, you know, in a different way, right? Uh, it's literally, I mean, we're here to help um, scaling Ethereum in a responsible way. I mean, that's our mission, essentially. Mm-hmm. Right? We're mm-hmm. here to make sure that there are no like Trojan horses, there are no uh, dishonest providers because end users, they won't be able to tell the difference between well-engineered rollup and something that markets itself as a rollup, but, you know, like uh, it's it's really a poor 
um, man's efforts, you know, to actually do that. Um, right. So, so, and it's not a, it's not a binary, you know, as far as the disclosures, yeah, you know, it's, it's like it's, the, the worst case scenario is chain link doesn't mention multi-sig at all. Um, next best is probably deeply buried in the documentation with Arbitrum. Maybe they have a link to L2B, which is a separate resource. The best would be if you're using, if the end user, the retail user is using whatever application or bridge or whatever it might be, it's right there in their face because, and this is why regulators force traditional financial institutions to have front page disclosures that they don't want to have. You know, it's like if it's not uncomfortable for the developer, then it's probably not enough. You know, so it's not a it's not a binary. You're right. Um, and I was just looking; I didn't find the link, but I'm sure it's buried in there somewhere. It is um, buried somewhere. <laughs> and, uh, I can send you the link afterwards. Yeah, like yeah. I said, I mean, I think. I mean, we may like debate whether you know arbitrums or optimism disclosures. Uh, they should be more into your face or not. But uh, but that's that's. That's really about, you know, do you focus on growth? Do you focus on risks? Uh, I don't know. Maybe, like you said, I mean, maybe um, uh, at the end of the day, I leave it up to the teams to decide, right? It's not or the job. regulators, or, uh, Well, hopefully not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's where it's going. Hopefully. But I want to talk about the actual risks because, you know, you break them down really nicely and in plain English. Um, and again, if you're listening, you can go to l2beat.com and click on Arbitrum. We'll start there just because it's the biggest um, as far as TVL. But first, before we do that, I want to just thank our sponsor, the ThorChain community. I'm a big supporter of ThorChain because I think it's a project that fills a really important need that we have. If we want to swap tokens between blockchains, we almost always have to use centralized exchanges. And ThorChain is trying to solve that problem. They're trying to enable you to swap cross-chain native assets, not wrapped assets, but native assets without any centralized party involved. You can do this today. You go to ThorChain.org, you click on swap, it'll take you to ThorSwap, and you can swap Bitcoin for Ethereum. You can swap all these different crypto assets across chain, and that bridge in between that's ThorChain, and they're competing with the centralized exchanges. If they succeed in this mission, it could entirely change the way that we think about centralized exchanges. They might even become obsolete. This is a really important thing to get behind. It's not perfect. They're still working on it. It's still experimental. And remember, just because I tell you to use something doesn't mean you should run and use it. Go to ThorChain.org, read up on it. It's a great thing to learn about, even if you never use it. If you learn about it, it'll kind of make your mind open up to some new ideas. And that's what I'm encouraging you to do right now. Go to ThorChain.org, read the docs, read the info, and see what you think. Thanks to ThorChain community for sponsoring this episode. A lot of these risks exist on other L2s that L2Beat has, has reviewed. Um, so I think it's relevant to take a look. And you don't mince words. Like You look under risk summary, and it's straight up. Funds can be stolen if, and then you list off two things there. Um, the first one is, and you know, maybe we should just go through them, like and give a top line of what each of these means because they are, and I know you can click on them and get more detail, but so none of the whitelisted verifiers checks the published state and you mark this as critical. So can you just give a little explanation of what that means? Yeah, so essentially Arbitrum is an optimistic rollup. Uh, so it's like a class of systems and every single optimistic rollup would probably uh, 
have this property, they uh, do rely on the fact that there are uh, what we call uh, external validators or watchtowers or fishermen. I mean, there are different terms that we tend to use for this role. But essentially, the way optimistic rollup works is that uh, block proposer of L2 they claim uh, that a new state of the L2 is something, right? And they publish it to mainnet Ethereum uh, without any proof. And that's like uh, different from ZK rollups, which, you know, the new state is uh, always published with uh, a cryptographic proof, right? And L1 can verify this. In this case, uh, L1 doesn't verify uh, anything really so it's like a claim right that the new state uh is something a new state by the way you know it's like the sum of i don't know everyone's balances right um so essentially the uh, the the l2 sequencer or block proposer uh they would uh, periodically uh claim that um the new state uh is something and if no one objects uh this is considered to be truth Right? So this is the whole idea. And obviously, for this to work uh, safely or securely, uh, there must be something or someone uh, observing this, this claim and independently checking it. Uh, if there's no such entity at all, uh, then this claim can be anything, really. can be uh, can be a lie, right? can be any made-up state. And if sequencer can made up state, the state may say that every single token belongs to the sequencer, right? So eventually mm-hmm. they will be able to steal everything. And uh, we have uh, quite recently run an experiment uh, on another optimistic rollup called Fuel. Uh, interestingly enough, if you go to L2Beat uh, main site, you'll see Fuel at the very bottom of the list, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it holds exactly eight dollars uh, <laughs> of value, <Okay. laughs> and literally no one is using it. Right? Like no one. <laughs> is it even um, available to be used? It is actually available to be used. Oh, wow. no one's, yeah, no one's using it. Uh, it's more of an experiment, if you like. And uh, the last we checked uh, for the last year, no one literally used that at all. And uh, and and this is optimistic rollup. Uh, so the same principle applies, right? And, you know, I proposed to my colleagues, hey, uh, how about we try to steal that $8? Because obviously <laughs> no one's going to, like, watch this chain. Uh, and no one's going to pay money to watch this chain, right? So we will propose a new state route, which will assign these uh, $8 to us. We are going to wait seven days, because this is how much normally you have to wait so that someone can dispute and and then we walk away with eight dollars, and we will publish, you know, the blog post, and we will make everyone <laughs> away, uh, aware that well, look, all these constructions are only safe as long as there are honest validators watching the optimistic chain, right? Right. right. Uh, so what happens? I mean, we we try to steal these eight dollars. We posted, you know, the uh, fraudulent uh, state route, and literally five seconds later, <laughs> we got caught by a validator, <laughs> and we lost uh, half ETH uh, because we had to post a bond. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Okay, yeah, so they caught a... us red-handed. You know, it's almost like so it worked. Know, 
Yeah, yeah, imagine imagine the store, you know, with this little like I don't know watch, you know, lying there, and you see like there's no camera, like there's nothing watching you. How about I try to steal because you know I haven't seen anyone walking in or out this store, you know, for a year, right? So clearly right. there's no security at all. Uh, so you walk into the store and immediately the alarm rises, right? So this is literally the situation that we saw on on fuel. Yeah. So what I'm trying to say here is that if no one's watching, uh, then there's this chance that um, um, uh, all funds may be stolen, right? Um, and now there's this open question, how do we even know uh, if someone's watching or not? Uh, and, we, and Arbitrum, uh, do, how many validators do they have? Well, see, that's the thing, that uh, on fully permissionless system, uh, anyone should be able to run the validator, right? So that's one thing. So normally on fuel, you just don't know because um, it's it's a permissionless system. Anyone can run the validator and anyone can post a frog proof. Uh, I mean, same with Arbitrum. Anyone can run a validator. Anyone can see if the state uh, route is uh, essentially uh, valid or not. You can do it. I can do it. Anyone on the internet can do it. Um, the problem with the current uh, deployment for Arbitrum is that you have to be whitelisted to to challenge the sequencer. Okay. Okay. So, um, so if I find that the state is not correct right now, I cannot challenge it. Uh, the only thing that I can do is essentially I can like make the the, the broad community aware of the fact, right? I can tweet it out. I can make everyone aware, and uh, I'm pretty sure that you know, uh, assuming the honesty of Arbitrum team, if that was indeed the case, they would very likely, I don't know, press the pause button. You know, they would say that well, there must be a bug or something. I don't know, something really, really wrong happened, right? Yeah, um, yeah. That but that would be my assumption today. But the truth uh, with Arbitrum right now is that you have to be whitelisted uh, to 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 actually uh, challenge the sequencer. Do you know if there's a if that's public? If the whitelisting uh, list is public, because I can't find it right now. Um, like who the validators are. Yeah, I mean, right now, the uh, um, there's, there's a public list. Uh, I mean, it's not like uh, it's a public in the sense that uh, you know exactly who's running them, but uh, the the addresses, right? The, uh, the Ethereum but addresses. But who's running? We don't know. They could, they could all be run by Arbitrum. Oh, right now, yes, absolutely. Okay. And by so, the way, it is our intention uh, at L2Beat to, to actually to run one of these uh, validators. Yeah, if you get whitelisted. If right. we get Which, whitelisted, right I mean, now, for yes. all you know, you might have to sign some kind of contract to be a validator, right? I mean, who knows? With what? That's the problem with like that you're outlining. You listed this risk under funds can be stolen, but it's not just funds can be stolen. Basically, any aspect of the chain can be modified. Uh, it could be forked, right? Like we could roll it back. Um, we could do just about anything if nobody objects, and if the validators are restricted um, to a small group, even if it's a large group. You know, if they all agree on an issue, even if it runs counter to the interests of you as a depositor on the chain, those validators could just, with an optimistic roll-up, 
they could just ignore the um, the the bad state yep. that's being proposed. Well, uh, and just... Absolutely, and I think that everyone agrees that the end uh, game for optimistic rollups is to make sure that anyone. Uh, can be a validator, and this is truly permissionless role, right? And this is the case with Fuel right now. It's not the case with uh, Arbitrum, I believe, because, uh, I mean, you would have to ask them why this is the case, but uh, uh, to me, it's very likely that um, they want to have these uh, kind of training wheels for a while. They want to make sure that there are no bugs in the system. Uh, They want to make sure that um, you don't run into the situation where a uh, validator can, um, I don't know, incorrectly challenge, if you like, right? Uh, you have to be sort right. of 100% sure that your fraud-proof system actually works and it works as intended. And it does take time, I think. And in my personal opinion, it does make sense to sort of start off with the uh, validators that you know that are honest and then maybe after a while, uh, once your confidence uh, grows uh, that the system is actually sound and bug-free, you open up uh, to anyone really to uh, to pose a challenge. Yeah, and I'm sure if we asked Arbitrum, they would say that's the goal, right? The goal is to open it up and to let anybody be a validator so that we can have a yes. safer system for everyone. Um, and my focus is always on like what's possible today. Right. And, um, you know, at its peak Arbitrum had over $4 billion worth of value on its L2. Now it's down to 2.7 just because of the price drop and stuff. But, um, what that boils down to is there's $2.7 billion worth of value that is at the mercy, so to speak of unknown people. That's what it comes. I mean, because we don't even know if those validators are run by by Arbitrum. It could be uh, their investors. It could be other DeFi projects. It could be you know the Arbitrum CEO's mother. Like we don't know who's running the validators. Um, we don't know if they're paying any attention. They might not be paying any attention at all. And like I said before, there's nothing stopping a company like Arbitrum from making its whitelisted validators sign some some kind of agreement where it says. You're going to do what we tell you to do. You know, if we tell you to let it go, you're going to let it go. You just, we just need you to run this validator. Um, we don't know because they haven't told us. You know, so there's there's been no transparency there that I know of. I would like to get some. That would be great. But see, we're only on the first thing, and already, you know, out of out of five things you've listed here on L2B, already on number one, we have a completely um, uh, a, a factor that requires complete and total trust in the team. You know, and um, to me, that's that's a deal breaker for me. Um, number two, you listed here under funds can be stolen. If a contract receives a malicious code upgrade, there's no delay on code upgrades. So how do code upgrades work with an L2? Uh, very much the same as code upgrades for uh, anything really on Ethereum. Uh, so um, we talked before about the circuit breaker. Um, The problem with upgrades is that uh, sometimes it's a feature upgrade. uh, So um, you would like to have a really long uh, 
kind of delay so that the end users can opt out uh, if they don't like uh, new features of the system, right? Uh, ideally, a few weeks or even months. Uh, if you don't like the new rules of the game, you should exit uh, with your money, essentially, right? Um, right? But then you also have to deal uh, with potential bugs and potential um, zero-day exploits, um, and that requires uh, some sort of emergency action, right? Uh, so this is something that you know people are debating. Uh, what's the best approach? And again, um, it seems to me that most teams they take this approach that initially uh, they will just assign to themselves the uh, the 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 power uh, to perform these upgrades um, because you know they have to react to some sort of emergency. But obviously, the flip side that is that if they are really malicious, they could potentially upgrade the whole system uh, so that funds are frozen or in the worst case scenario, they are uh, stolen, right? So these mm-hmm. upgrades are obviously dangerous and um, and this is a hard problem. This is almost as hard problem as the oracles problem, how to do decentralized oracles uh, on blockchain. This is tough as well. Uh, how to upgrade systems is also tough. Um, yeah. And this really, this is the multi-sig admin key problem that keeps coming yeah. up. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, um, this is not that, that different, right? And, you know, people are pointing out to protocols like, say, Uniswap V2 that did not have any uh, type of upgrade facility. Uh, but, you know, Uniswap V2, it's essentially a smart contract that the full code can probably fit in one screen, right? This is very, yeah. very simple. Uh, this one is extremely complicated. Uh, it's a very complicated structure. And as you've noticed, you know, um, there's a lot of money, right, at stake. Uh, so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, to balance, you know, the, uh, the risks with the risk of the malicious operator, I think, frankly, that most users, uh, I do understand that you are concerned that if team turns to be malicious, um, this could be uh, catastrophic, right? Um, but I do wonder uh, if most uh, end users, they actually um, are not more worried about the potential exploits and the bugs, and they would gladly trust the team to, to you know, to have this uh, upgrade facility, right, just in case. I think, yeah, I think you're right that users want to be protected. And I don't think that multi-sigs are necessarily a bad thing all the time. I think that what's a bad thing is the lack of transparency about what they're capable of doing. You know, and even in this conversation, we're talking about, oh, if the team turns bad. That's just one of many, 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 many things that could go wrong with a multi-sig, right? Ranging from um, a regulatory attack like a regulator comes in and forces them to make a change that they don't want to make that's not in the best interests of depositors uh, to a, a wrench attack. I mean, a kidnapping, like there's so many things. It sounds, these are things that again, sound nuts until they happen. And um, so it doesn't, you know, and then all the way down also to, to negligence. Like we don't know how the wallet that, is holding one of the six keys to Arbitrum. We don't know how it was created. We don't know if it was created in a secure environment. We don't know if the seed phrase that's responsible for securing the key that somebody has on their hardware wallet 
We don't know how that seed phrase is being secured. We don't know where it was created. We don't know if there was a camera in the room when it was being created. We don't know if it was created in front of a laptop with a hacked webcam. You know, so it's like you have to trust the entire history of every wallet in addition to the integrity and skill of every person involved. Um, and you even have to trust beyond that, that, um, you know, anybody who might have also had access to it, it you have to trust. It, it sort of fans out to this place philosophically where you can't possibly have that level of trust, you know, so that and then again, like regulators and 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 other types of attackers that might want to swoop in. Um, it's such a massive philosophical issue. Like, so it's not just limited to the team wakes up one day and, and is evil. You know, it, it goes so far beyond that. But you so this is the stuff that users don't fully understand. So yeah, they want the safety that you're proposing against bugs. They want to know that just like with any app, it doesn't have to be uh, on Ethereum, any app out there that has your money in it. You want to know your money's safe. You know, your bank, if you use a bank, you want to know that somebody's fixing the bugs in the bank software. Uh, you don't want them to have to wait three weeks to get a fix in. But at the same time, it's the other side that people don't fully understand. You know, so that's the side that I think that we don't talk enough about. Um, and, and, and for this, you know, we'd like to provide users with full transparency. So uh, we will, uh, in the next version, uh, we will not just disclose risks, which can be seen as our personal interpretations of the architecture, but we will uh, provide users with the full history of uh, all the upgrades. We will provide users with the full history of all the uh, important parameters changes and so on and so forth, right? So we kind of believe that, you know, at that stage of the development of these systems, uh, providing uh, transparency can only help and will make also teams more like uh, accountable for the actions as well, right? Uh, they mm -hmm. will have to... Uh, be more transparent in messaging and, and so forth. And again, I mean, um, I said that, you know, in, in my personal opinion, you know, Arbitrum has always been very, like, forthcoming uh, in terms of uh, transparency. Uh, I mean, I sent you the link to uh, their documentation. They, um, they uh, say that their system right now is in uh, uh, beta, right? Um, and they do have um, contract upgradeability power, ability to pause the system, validate a whitelisting. Uh, and they say that they are temporarily maintaining these capabilities as, in their opinion, uh, this is the only responsible way uh, to launch uh, while we, uh, they continue to harden the system, right? Uh, and they do actually link to l2bid.com, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, I think that's good. I'll add the link to the show notes. But nowhere on that page does it say, we're capable of taking your money. And nowhere on, this, <laughs> nowhere on yeah, that page well, does it say if a re what how they would react if they received a government request. You know, oh, nowhere... Yeah, that's, that's, that's a very different uh, conversation. Nowhere does it Maybe, say yes. if, you know, if our CEO's family is kidnapped here's how we and the the kidnapper demanded we use the multi-sig in this way how would we react <laughs> you know so it's like again crazy until it happens and when there's billions of dollars at stake you need to start thinking outside the box a little bit right so yes yes um, I, I agree and that's why you know i personally also you know think that maybe we are like scaling 
too fast, right? Um, we should like, um, but you know, I mean, as I said, I mean, I don't think it's L two beat role to to judge. You know, the, no, the that's teams. my role. I judge. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you can judge. Uh, we are here to provide transparency, but we also want to make sure that you know we uh, are like community uh, built and uh, and. You know, the way we think uh, about ourselves uh, is that we want to be vendor neutral, right? Uh, That's so good. You should do that. We, we need that. That's what I was saying in the beginning. Like, we need those types of services, you know, um, those public goods. Yeah, so type, this is know? the way the community self-regulates itself, right? I mean, the more uh, that such work is done, uh, maybe the less chance is that indeed regulators will try to do this work for us because, you know, this is literally what they're trying to do, right? I mean, they want to tell people what they should invest in and what they should not invest in. Whereas we think that we should provide users transparency and they should essentially decide for themselves. Yeah. Regulators protect people from themselves, you know, and, and, um, or they, they claim to, um, and the problem with, you know, I hear what you're saying about the disclosures. They've been open with you and they're open in, um, providing information for, for L2B, but they're not doing as much as they can to educate the retail user. You know, like it's not on the homepage for a reason because it would scare people away. That's why it's not on the homepage, you know, because they, they're concerned about growth. They want users. So regulators come in and they force them to put it right there where every user is going to see it in plain English, like those cigarette labels that you get on cigarette packs. No cigarette manufacturer wants a picture of, of a dead person on their cigarette pack. But a regulator came in and said, well, this is we're going to force you to do this so that users see it and they understand exactly what they're getting into. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is a separate conversation, but that's what they're going to do to DeFi. And the fact that use that um, that DeFi teams feel like they want to, and it is hiding. I mean, to put something in your documentation and not acknowledge it on a homepage when it's this level of importance is hiding it. Because you know most users are not going into the docs and most users are not going to L2B. And this is why, no offense to L2B, but most users aren't going to L2B. Um, this is why I can tweet the most obvious things. You know, the most obvious things. I can just put in a tweet. And if I just put a few siren things, woo, 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 and put it in capital letters and, and, and say it like a crazy person, it'll get like, you know, thousands of likes. It'll get headline news in DeFi magazine, you know, and like, it's like, it doesn't make sense. And it's only happening because um, all the information is there. It's there on the chain. It's there in L2B. It's there in the documentation. But people don't look at that stuff. They only look at the headlines, you know. And uh, the if this was on the homepage, it would be a different story. But it's not, you know. So that's what I've been pushing for. But on Arbitrum, um, there's an admin key, right? So um, on your Arbitrum page under smart contracts, you have all these listed contracts here that can be upgraded. Um, is it safe to say that they can pretty much change any aspect of the code with the multi-sig? Pretty much, yes. Okay. And it's a four of six multi-sig is what's listed here. And you do a great job of listing the contract. And then here's a link to the admin key, um, et cetera, et cetera. There's like probably but at least 10 contracts here. Um, 
but again, it's like we've gotten through two out of five things on here, and I can't think of how it could be more centralized, right? As far as like the the ability to you know with the whitelisted validators, um, with the admin key, and both of those things. Have they told you that they plan to change those two things? Oh yeah, um, they okay. are uh, absolutely um, adamant. I think, uh, and all of them are actually. You know, I mean, every team that we uh, talk to, frankly, if they did not have intention to be fully decentralized, we probably would hesitate uh, listing their system uh, because we kind of accepted the fact that uh, today these rollups they all do seem to have those training wheels, as we call them, right? The admin keys, the whitelists, and uh, so on and so forth, uh, because these are very new and complex systems. Now, if we only listed, you know, uh, protocols that do not have these features, we would end up having only fuel, right? With $8 value. So obviously, (laughs) you know, we would be a very uh, nice but completely useless resource. (laughs) Is fuel Um, really the only permissionless uh, L2 on your list? Um, especially yes. Wow, that's interesting. You know, it's and by the way, if you're listening to this and you're you're that one dummy who's about to throw like five thousand dollars into fuel because you think there's going to be airdrop, just go. Just don't listen anywhere, please. Just no, 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 no. There will be. I mean, <laughs> the, the fuel V1. You know, this is uh, an experiment. Uh, <laughs> if you like, this is the first optimistic rollup ever deployed on Ethereum, and. Uh, and the team uh, at Fuel Labs, you know, they're working hard uh, um, developing Fuel V2. Um, and this will, from what I know, uh, that will be available uh, in a few months. Um, and that, that's going to be a very uh, interesting optimistic rollup as well. Yeah. Yeah. So um, now on the list here, you've got funds can be lost if there are mistakes in the highly complex AVM implementation, which basically is a fancy way of saying if there's a bug, right? Yes. Uh, yes. And this is a very nuanced point uh, because uh, this is a very interesting uh, um observation that the more complex the system you have, obviously there's more like opportunity to uh, to introduce unwanted bugs, right? Um, so you'd like your system to be as simple as possible. Um, so this is essentially the approach that we've always taken at MakerDAO, just to make sure that the code base of MakerDAO core contracts are as succinct and as small uh, as possible. Um, and we took months uh, and months, you know, trying to verify them, formally verify them, right? I mean, we take security very seriously at MakerDAO. And what we saw, especially after the uh, the DeFi summer, uh, that uh, people became very, very reckless, right? Um, the code base is very complicated and it's uh, it's just harder to maintain and it's harder to reason. Uh, so... So you'd like to to make sure that your code base is minimal, if you like, right? And that does require a lot of conscious effort. Uh, so interestingly enough, you know, this is the uh, one of the things that Optimism is trying to compete on with Arbitrum. They say that you know they try to make the code base as small as possible. Uh, they call it a minimal diff uh, from from Geth, and they are 
I guess, probably uh, rightly uh, proud of, you know, the fact that they try to minimize their code base, right? Um, the current version of Arbitrum is actually quite uh, complicated. Um, uh, but again, I mean, we're only evaluating the current version, right? I mean, Arbitrum is working on the new version. This new version will be uh, based on EVM, not AVM. Um, so it's going to be a little bit different. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, you know, certain risks may be just smaller, right? Yeah, uh, but if you're there today, it matters, right? Because there's probably nobody outside of the core team who's read the Arbitrum code and fully grasped it um, because of its complexity, right? It's so, possible. Um, <laughs> and that's why they need the admin key. That's why they need the whitelisted validators, right? Because they want to have every possible opportunity to fix something, uh, an unpredicted event from, you know, if it happens and it's damaging to the state of the chain, yes, um, they want to be able to fix it. Yes. Um, if they're attacked and something, you know, th somebody's about to drain everything, they want to lock it down. You know, if... And interestingly enough, they've got seven days to actually block it, right? Which, oh, right, because of the the the, the delay in writing back yeah. to the main chain, right? Um, but then the other thing is they could also roll it back, right? Like if if something happened and they were able to lock down the bridge and and just keep everything in Arbitrum, and they're like, you know what, we're going to roll this back because this shouldn't have happened. There's nothing stopping that. That would be an internal Arbitrum decision. It's not like the Ethereum rollback where the community is weighing in. This would be like the core team of Arbitrum making an arbitrary, oh, that's interesting, Arbitrum, arbitrary, uh, decision to do a rollback that's within their power, right? Um, I think uh, you would be probably uh, more right to say that they are able to fork uh, their system Technically, okay. they cannot roll back uh, uh, because uh, the transactions on Arbitrum, once they are posted to L1, are final. Um, um, but they could potentially fork uh, the system if there's like a catastrophic bug. And they could potentially somehow, I don't know, that would be uh, highly complicated, but I think they would be able to somehow uh, through upgrades and whatnot, right? By some complicated mechanism, I would assume uh, they would be able to uh, to move the state over to a new fork. Um, okay. So they could simulate a rollback in a way. Well, yeah, it's not exactly a rollback, like from a yeah, technical point you. of view, but uh, but uh, but indeed they would be able to, uh, to 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 kind of recover, right? I guess my point is that they. They've kept every possible tool in their tool belt that they could keep to fix problems yes. that might come up. There's really nothing that they can't fix using all of this centralization, but at the same time, the centralization puts every user's trust in this core team and whoever else they've sort of outsourced like validators too and stuff like that. Yeah, and this is the current state. And like I said, I mean, I strongly believe that, you know, the, the team's intention, uh, every single team's intention is to consider uh, this uh, temporary. But obviously, I would agree with you if you said that, you know, that's what every single team would say, right? <laughs> At that it point. is. I've never met a DeFi team that didn't say that. 
and then but the what the I would say out of all of them, like there's maybe less than ten percent have actually achieved their roadmaps, you know, and then the rest are still trying to get there, or they've given up and just said, "Screw it, we're just going to keep our multi-sig." Um, so you have funds can be frozen if the centralized validator goes down. Users cannot produce blocks themselves, and exiting the system requires new block production. So we hear this a lot that um, roll up friends say, you know what, even if we go out of business, um, you'll be able to execute a transaction on Ethereum to be able to get your funds back. But what this is saying is that that might not be the case. Uh, how would this work? Uh, to exit funds, um, you need to essentially um, submit, let's call it a withdrawal request, right? Like a transaction. Uh, so normally this transaction will be uh, sent to sequencer uh, and sequencer will try to process this transaction. I mean, sequencer can censor you uh, or sequencer can be down, right? Uh, so this, it would appear that there is no entity to send this withdrawal request to. Fortunately, you can actually do it via L1 and you can include this uh, withdrawal request in what's called uh, a delayed uh, inbox on L1, uh, and assuming that L1 is censorship resistant, you will be able always to do that, right? So, you, so this is a good news. The bad news is that regardless of whether you post your withdrawal request to sequencer or you do it via L1, which is more cumbersome but it's doable, uh, there must be an entity that processes your withdrawal request, and by doing so. Uh, this entity should uh, post a new state route on uh, on L1. And until that's done, uh, you cannot take your funds out uh, from from essentially an escrow uh, on L1, okay. right? So you're saying, so Arbitrum's running a validator, and but there's also other validators too, right? There's these whitelisted validators. So is it that there needs to be at least one of these validators um, up and running in order to process that transaction? Yes. Okay. So it doesn't need to be Arbitrums. Um, it could be any of them. But for now, Arbitrums whitelisting. So um, it needs to be an, are whitelisted by Arbitrum. So if Arbitrum goes, goes out of business today, shuts down whatever they're running in their office, um, you know, and uh, the other validators stay up, you're okay. But if they go away too, then your money's gone. Uh, it's frozen. It's frozen in time. And unless a, somebody spins up another validator um, in the future, you wouldn't be able to get it back. Pretty much so, yeah. Okay, okay. That's So it's different with ZK rollups, right? Or is it? Because I thought that you were able to get your money back through the L1 without having to rely on like um, ZK Sync or Loopring to still be there? Yeah, um, for some ZK rollups, uh, like ZK Sync, uh, V1, um, the one that's uh, right now uh, on the mainnet, indeed, uh, the case is that if they go dark entirely, uh, then users uh, will be able to enter what's called essentially an exit mode. Uh, something like this, right? 
they will submit a request via L1 and and if this is not answered for a period of time, essentially the rollup will shut down, right? Um, and when it's shut down, uh, users will be able to exit their funds based on essentially the last uh, committed state. Um, so everything that happened after the, uh, the the last state commit, it will be essentially uh, forgotten, but uh, but the last state will be used uh, so that user could exit these funds. So that's the state okay. with uh, zk sync, and the reason why you can do it is essentially because you, uh, as a user, uh, you are essentially able to to stop the whole rollup, right? Now, for a number of reasons, uh, this is hard or almost impossible to do with uh, um, general computation rollups like uh, Arbitrum, Optimism, and also you won't be able to do it, as far as I know, with ZKSync 2.0, um, because stopping a rollup, uh, if this rollup holds not just your funds, but uh, different DeFi applications, like say Uniswap or you know more complex applications, suddenly this state is very complex and that requires uh, interpretation. It's not just your balance. Um, it may be you know a very complicated state of the DeFi on that rollup, right? So instead of stopping the rollup, uh, I believe that the current plan of zk sync. Uh, is essentially to allow uh, other provers to take over, right? Uh, so okay. you'll be able essentially to, if the prover goes down, you'll be able to kick it out from, let's say, this whitelist, and you'll be able to propose another one. So someone will always be able to uh, take over, if you like. And okay. And this is probably the uh, the mechanism that I would expect from Arbitrum moving forward, right? So it is possible with an optimistic rollup, just like it is um, with the... Yeah, yeah. It's okay. just that right now, because of the whitelist, uh, that might be problematic. But uh, eventually, I hope that you know this is something that definitely uh, will be possible on Arbitrum, uh, in a sense that if they go dark entirely, someone else should be able to take over. Is optimism in the same boat with whitelisted yes. validators? Okay. Right now, yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. That's great only, information. Yeah, it's only fuel. <laughs> we paid dollars, right? Which I guess the other the other concern would be um, if um, if a government did come in and shut down Arbitrum or force it to freeze for an indefinite period. You know, it's like your funds are still there, but we're freezing it. Arbitrum is going to freeze its validators. Our whitelisted validators are going to freeze. Um, it's a small enough group it, with, with enough power centralized where that could happen. And the money wouldn't be gone. You just wouldn't be able to get it until they reactivate the network. Um, so that's probably a bigger concern to me than like Arbitrum running out of money and going out of business. Because that would happen over a longer period of time. right? If a government swooped in, and said, we need you to freeze this for six months while we investigate X, Y, Z. Or, uh, hey, we just learned that Vladimir Putin is using Arbitrum to do this and that, and he has uh, you know, $800 million there, and we need to freeze this. Um, that's not out of the realm of possibility like that that could happen. And we're reaching numbers now, especially if we 
do return to like a, a, def- a bull market or a DeFi summer or whatever again, you know, where all of a sudden Arbitrum is, is 8 billion, 10 billion, 50 billion uh, TVL. Um, you know, it, it's, there's no reason it can't happen, you know, uh, at least not until as long as we have anonymous usage, <laughs> right? So, uh, which is another case, I'm making the case here for, uh, Elizabeth Warren or somebody to add KYC to this stuff. Um, but okay. So the, the final thing you listed under risk summary for Arbitrum is about MEV, which is actually really interesting. Um, for a final point for us to hit on MEV can be extracted if the operator exploits their centralized position and front runs user transactions and just a really, really quick and simple um, explanation of what MEV means. If you're new to it, uh, minor extractable value, basically if you're doing a swap one token for another token, um, the miner has the ability to order the transactions in the block in a certain way, and they can insert their own transactions before and after yours. So they can price, they can um, buy a bunch of the token that you're about to buy uh, right before you buy it um, to drive the price up. And then um, they can dump it right after. And basically you would get screwed on the, on the swap. And this happens every single day. And you might've seen it already if you're using like Uniswap, or um, one inch or other applications to do swaps, especially on layer one, because there's takes so long for those transactions to get mined. But what L2B is saying here is Arbitrum and other L2s are super centralized. They can control the transaction order on their L2 because of this centralization. So they're fully capable of running these, these front running transactions um, is that basically what you're saying there? It's it's because of the current level of centralization that it's not that they are doing this, but they can do this. Yeah. Yes. It's not that they are doing this, but uh, indeed uh, they can do it because uh, they uh, they control the process of sequencing transactions, right? And if you, let's say, uh, send to... Um, transfers requests of your funds on L2 to two different people, uh, they will ultimately decide which one gets processed and which one will uh, not, right? So in a way, you know, they are in power. uh, And this is the same power that miners on L1 have. um, And we've been dealing with this problem for, 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 for months. Um, and there are certain strategies uh, how to uh, deal with that. And again, I have to praise Arbitrum team because they are very much aware of it and uh, they've been very vocal about this problem for four for years, if not months, by the way. Um, uh, but this problem is not uh, unique uh, to L2s, right? Uh, the current Ethereum also has this problem and... And like I said, I mean, there are certain strategies being discussed uh, and they will be likely implemented in the future that will essentially remove that power from, from sequencers. But right now, this is the case, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no, uh, because sequencers are centralized, I mean, it's very easy for them uh, to, uh, to potentially engage in this activity if they wanted to. Um, Have you, you seen had- MEV going on on L2s? 
Um, well, uh, I have not, but I have not checked either. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what level it is. Um, yeah. And, and, and I think that it's like your people's head might jump right to Arbitrum sitting there, you know, just running transactions from their office, like to, to sandwich, um, users, um, and, and generating MEV. That's, I think that's a lot less likely than um, basically giving preferential treatment to certain types of users or, um, you know, basically coming up with some justifiable reason why this, these whitelisted users should have priority, you know, over others. Like there's a lot of different ways this can go. And so I think that having the centralized sequencer, um, which probably isn't going to change anytime soon, right? Like even if they get rid of the admin key and even if they get rid of the whitelist, like the sequencer is going to stay centralized, right? So they're always going to have that ability to choose, okay, this Ethereum address and this one and this one, they're going to have these superpowers to be able to get in the front of every block, you know, because of this or that, or maybe again, maybe it's a government um, thing. Maybe the government has to have the the right to front run anybody. You know, it's like who knows what's going to happen. But just the fact that they have that ability um, is is kind of worrisome when you think about where this might go as far as regulation and stuff like that. Um, is that the kind of so when you say they're working to get rid of it, you're talking about the centralized sequencer or just the the MEV aspect of it. Um, more of a MEV aspect of it, you know. I think okay. I think the industry uh, shares a common vision how we should responsibly scale uh, Ethereum uh, so that uh, it stays decentralized and censorship resistant. And MEV is uh, essentially a problem that everyone recognizes that uh, this is a huge issue. And there are certain strategies uh, being proposed that I believe that long term uh, they should like uh, help dealing with this problem. Um, um, right now, uh, it seems like what's a co- uh, it's called proposer builder separation uh, architecture design um, is essentially a way of saying that different entities will be responsible for proposing new blocks and different entities will be responsible for actually uh, computing the state uh, of the new blocks, right? And um, and by separating these two roles, uh, we will hopefully end up in a situation where, you know, there'll be a different competing entities uh, that will try to, to sequence transactions, right? And the, 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 the um, proposers, the entities that are actually computing the state, they just don't know uh, exactly uh, what uh, will be the sequence, right? They will essentially uh, be delivered a package with transactions and they will have to uh, simply uh, run through these transactions and compute a new state without having any ability to uh, to essentially influence the sequence of these transactions, right? So, uh, so it's a you know it's a relatively novel design, and and I believe that you know in the future uh, that's going to be uh, probably the typical design for all these constructions. But right now, I mean, we're definitely not there. 
Okay. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. Not yet. Everything is is uh, coming. Right? Everything is coming. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we can only hope. We can only hope. We can only um, hope, but at the same time, you know, like I said at the beginning of the uh, of this conversation, um, L2Beat is here to not just to inform users about the risks, but also to promote um, the rollup centric uh, scaling. Um, roadmap of Ethereum uh, because we uh, happen to believe that uh, this is the uh, uh, the only way that we know of uh, of scaling blockchains that will uh, not lead to centralization, right? And this is something that we don't want. Um, so, um, is it, I mean, when you say that. It is centralized, right? At launch, so it's it. We have to, you know, we're, we we want to avoid centralization, but we have to centralize now in order to do that later. Yeah, we have to centralize now in order to decentralize later. In a way, right? <laughs> See, this is the message I rarely, I rarely trust. Uh-huh. Um, but I hear you. I hear you, and it's good to it's good to have you guys as a proponent of that um of the of the scaling effort you know and i think that without this resource we'd be in the dark with a lot of the stuff you know so it's really really great to have um so if you've listened to this whole thing you got to go to l2beat.com you need to you know there's a lot of information just look at what is interesting to you you're probably dealing with arbitrum optimism there's dydx and loopring and it goes on and on and on um but look at it and don't be afraid to admit to yourself you know once you learn more about the risks don't be afraid to admit to yourself that maybe it's too much risk for you you know maybe you need to make it a judgment for yourself now that you know if you're using Arbitrum and you have, you know, half of your life savings there, but you have to trust this core team to do all of this stuff right, or else that life savings could be in trouble. You need to be rational about this stuff. And yes, it's going to change in six months, 12 months, 18 months, you know, whatever. But you have to think about today, like what is the risk? The risks with the centralization of the admin key, the, the validators being whitelisted, the sequencer, the, you know, the possibility of, of regulation and governments and that, you know, there's all kinds of things that, that are going on that you need to think about. So that's what L2B is for, you know, and um, I want to keep pressing for teams to be way more transparent about these issues up front with users, you know, and um, I'm going to send people to L2B and I already do as much as I can, you know, just to get that information Um but you know, thank you for for doing that. You know, for for keeping it going. And um, is there anything else that you want um, for people other than for just for them to go to the website? Um, maybe um, this is a good time to uh, to tell everybody that um, this is just the beginning for L two Beat. Uh, we're not uh, going just to focus on rollups and L twos. Uh, in fact, right now we are working on the bridge framework. Uh, nice. So a very similar uh, risk framework for all types of bridges, uh, not just uh, rollups. Um, by the way, rollups can also be seen as a type of a bridge uh, because we've been talking about you know moving your funds uh, into a rollup and back, right? Um, 
but uh, you'll be moving your funds into different uh, chains and develops as well using different bridges as well, right? And uh, we want to have a very similar framework uh, so that users can actually uh, understand better, not just uh, how much does it cost to move money and uh, how fast uh, um, is the bridge, uh, but also... Uh, we want to inform them uh, what are the trust assumptions, right? Uh, do you need to trust the team? Uh, is the bridge upgradable? Again, um, can you be censored uh, on a bridge, right? And if you are censored, then what is the consequence? Are your funds mm-hmm. going to get stuck in the bridge? Uh, or um, you'll be able to somehow retrieve funds that you've moved to the bridge, but they got stuck for whatever reason, right? And nothing happens. Um, so we'll be looking at not just rollers, but also uh, all the bridges as well. And there are a lot of nice things coming to L2Pete. That's awesome. I can't wait to see it. Um, all right. Well, great. Well, thanks for joining, man. I'm really glad we got to do this. I think we like, I have so much more to talk to you about. Um, so I feel like we might want to do it again sometime. There's so many other issues. Like you just brought up censorship. And I think that that's something we just didn't even talk about at all, which most of these L2s are able to do today, could be forced to do today, uh, but hopefully later in the future. Maybe the next time we do this, they won't have that power anymore, but I kind of doubt it. I think they will. <laughs> All right. But, uh, yeah, in the meantime, so much. Yep. it's been a pleasure. Thank you. L2Beat.com. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. <laughs>